I want to get to our first guest. Um, I was reading in the National Post yesterday that some critical care physicians in Canada say they've yet to face the feared surge of coronavirus sufferers, and there are still plenty of available ICU beds in Ontario of the province's expanded ventilator capacity still free, which is good news. The uh, patient volume is well under the best case scenario depicted by the Ontario government's uh, modeling, which was released earlier this month. And our premier, he said yesterday he is hopeful, but asking us to stay the course because this is the week we're expecting things to possibly peak here in Ontario. We're joined by Jason Kindrachuk. He's a Canada Research Chair in Emergency, Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba. Welcome to the show, Jason. Good to have you on. Great. Thank you for having me. What do these scenarios tell us? So I think right now what we're getting a better indication of is that I think Canada actually has, has done quite well. I think when we look at the uh, overall fatality rates per, per capita uh, with, with Canada as compared to other nations around the world, I think we, you know, we can stand back and say that we've actually done quite well. Uh, I think we've you know, been able to recognize cases very quickly and, and get those that, that look severely ill or, or potentially uh, like they, they might have severe complications. Uh, get them the care that they needed. Uh, and I think more than anything, I think we've had a, a public that has actually responded very well to to the public messaging campaigns. So I think overall, we you know, we can applaud um, the, the efforts that, that everybody has, has taken uh, part in so far. But we obviously need to kind of continue on this course to, to see this thing through. Yeah, when we're talking about 421 new cases in Ontario yesterday, and I believe we are at uh, province-wide, our numbers sit around uh, 7,470. We're not out of the woods yet when it comes to COVID-19. No, and you know what, I keep kind of, you know, reminding people, listen, I, again, I'm, I'm a simple virologist, so, uh, you know, you know take, take that at face value. But um, when I look at what is going on with this virus, the, the one thing we've learned, if anything, is that it has been somewhat unpredictable. So we, we have to kind of keep in mind that even when we start seeing trends that, that look positive, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that again, that, you know, we can kind of pull out the, the party favors and, and celebrate. We, we really have to uh, kind of continue onwards, said, you know, simply for the fact that we don't have a vaccine and we don't have therapeutics. This, this is our best chance at trying to contain this virus. Yeah, we have to be remain cautiously optimistic. But I'm hearing that even a slow uh, accumulation of severe cases could have a major effect on ICUs. Can you maybe add some perspective to this? Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll give it again a, a little bit of a perspective from from a non physician. Um, you know, the one thing that we look at is we always kind of compare back to to other respiratory viruses, and we compare back to influenza and say, well, you know, with influenza, even with high number of fatalities per year. Uh, you know, we don't see overcrowding of ICUs. And the difference, I think, again, with, uh, with COVID-19 is that we have, you know, basically a disease where a lot of people are showing up at hospitals at, at the exact same time. And, and that's our big concern is that we don't want to see, uh, you know, basically our, our healthcare workers get, get completely overwhelmed. So, uh, again, we, you know, we, we have to look back and say that, you know, we can be cautiously optimistic by the data that we're seeing. But we also have to appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, that, again, this, this still is a, a threat. And, uh, and we obviously could, could see resurgence in, in cases uh, if uh, social distancing measures are lifted too quickly. You know, when you hear about articles saying that uh, we are seeing uh, less, less people heading into the ICU than expected and, uh, you know, our critical care doctors aren't seeing the numbers that they'd expected by now with re- regard to COVID-19, um, are you at all concerned that maybe this will um, cause people to drop their 
you know, let down their guard a bit and stop listening to those stay at home directives because you're we're already noticing, you know, 18 people were out playing cricket on Sunday. Uh, we had a guy rollerblading with his kids, you know, that was approached by a bylaw officer and told to go home and he questioned, you know, who am I hurting? Yeah, so you know, we myself and the other Dr. Kinderchuk uh, had a, a fairly long discussion about this yesterday, and you know, it is kind of the you know the concern about the boy uh, that cried wolf phenomenon is that you know, with with a scenario we we knew that uh, or we know what pandemics can be, um, and, and I think obviously a lot of people initially thought that this was going to be the worst case scenario. Um, so you know, when when we see less than that, I think a lot of people start to let down their guard, and, and obviously. You know, the big thing is for, for public health uh, folks, in particular for physicians and epidemiologists, uh, you know, when, when they do the things or implement uh, the, you know, the things that, uh, that need to be done that, that work, um, often uh, it can actually look like, you know, things were, were far less severe than, than they could have been or should have been. Um, you know, and I think that actually is, is something we need to appreciate is that all the, the procedures that were, and uh, policies that were put in place uh, were what helped us lessen, uh, lessen the severity of, the, of this disease. Right. And we have to keep driving that message home because there's people out there that are, you know, uh, getting some traction on social media saying, you know, this was all overblown in the first place. And we just know by looking at the rest of the globe, not so, especially in Italy, especially in New York City. You mentioned that this virus is unpredictable. What has surprised you? The uh, what did you call yourself? A simple uh, virologist virologist. about this? (laughs) Yeah, so there, there have been a couple of things. Um, you know, one of the things that I think that, that is still remarkable, and, and I still have you know uh, Twitter threads that I go back to. Uh, you know, we, there are a lot of us that were talking about this on on New Year's Eve when we first saw that uh, the first cases being announced out of Wuhan. Um, I, listen, I, I will say right up front, I'm, I certainly, and I don't think many people expected that we would see this uh, virus spread across the globe within three months. Um, I think that was completely un- un- unpredicted. I-, I think we knew that there was something unique, but n- definitely not not to this degree. I-, I think the other thing that maybe I- I've come to appreciate is the fact that uh, look, th- this is not a virus like you know like Ebola that that I've worked with in West Africa in the past, um, where you know fifty percent of people die, and you can identify people that that are sick very easily because people get infected, get sick. This virus, um, it actually is, is able to uh, kind of be somewhat stealthy so that there are a large portion of the population that don't look like they have any symptoms. And that presents a, a real problem for us. I think that there are going to be a number of people afterwards that are going to have to take a step back and say, OK, well, how do we how do we you know, maybe um, you know, prepare for a scenario uh, where we see a, a virus that doesn't necessarily target you know, a large portion of the population? It's actually a far smaller portion. Um, but those ones get severely ill. How, how do we actually do this and, and keep people contained? Yeah, are we going to see a study where, uh, you know, once we get the serology test that, you know, we were talking to somebody who's waiting for approval on Health Canada for their serology test right here uh, in the Toronto area out of Markham. Uh, are we going to see uh, people that were asymptomatic that test positive for the antibodies then becoming part of a large study to find out, you know, what what it was about their biological makeup or what they were doing in their lives that led to them not showing symptoms or, you know, not exhibiting anything that would be life threatening? Yeah, I mean, you're asking the, uh, you know, the the most important question that we need to address. And, and this is something that, again, we've seen it with other diseases. We've seen it with uh, we've certainly seen it in some cases with with Ebola and, and uh, you know even other cases of uh, of influenza that there are certain people that just don't show symptoms. So what you know what is the reasoning behind that? Is it is it something due to age? Is there something you know between males and females that is different? Is it 
Um, you know, is it a specific, uh, you know, component within their immune system that, that functions differently? We, we don't know. And, and that's kind of where we're sitting at now is, you know, we, we have all these new questions that, that we need to address. It's just a matter of getting us through the crisis first and then figuring out afterwards what, what were the key differences uh, within these populations. Everybody's hoping for uh, some sort of vaccine as soon as possible, if not a vaccine, some potential treatment for COVID-19. I heard about a woman in Seattle. She's one of the first people to test this uh, experimental vaccine. Uh, this is, I think she's getting her second injection this week. You know, you can't tune into a, a White House press conference without hearing Trump promoting the use of uh, chloroquine or hydro, hydro, hydroxychloroquine. Um, as a potential treatment for COVID-19, despite concerns from his top medical officers. We've heard those. The New York Times reported that a research trial of coronavirus patients in Brazil ended after patients taking higher doses of chloroquine developed irregular heart rates that actually, in some cases, 11 of them were fatal. And that was in within six days of this study. So I, I, I wonder um, if this is going to finally put to rest the idea of using chloroquine. What's your thought on that? Well, you know, again, we're, we're still at a point where uh, a lot of the trials that, that have been presented, a lot of the data that has been presented has been really limited in terms of the number of patients that, that have been looked at. And, and I think that's where, you know, we, we all need to kind of take a step back and say, okay, if we, if we look at this through the lens of uh, significance and try and understand whether or not we can show mathematically that, that a group either shows improved uh, uh, you know, recovery or, um, or you know, maybe detrimental uh, effects due to the drug, we need a, a lot more patients. Uh, and those studies are, are ongoing. Um, but right now, what we can say is that there have been observations, I think, on both sides of the fence that really don't give us an indication uh, at all at this point whether or not we're going to see a benefit. And, the, you know, the chloroquine study in, uh, in Brazil is interesting. I think they've shown with high, you know, high doses of that drug that there are concerns. We, we already knew that there were potential uh, cardiac concerns uh, with that drug, which is why hydroxychloroquine was being touted. Um, but, but I don't think we are at uh, any point in time yet where we can definitively say one way or another where we're seeing uh, any, any true benefit. And, you know, I know a lot of people are going back and, and talking about the fact that we have a lot of anecdotal evidence of people suggesting that that they've seen differences or physicians that, uh, you know, that have been quoted anonymous, anonymously, but have said that they've seen uh, differences. We, we don't have the support of data to say that yet. And I think, you know, we, we need to see this thing through and, and keep our minds open to the fact that this may or may not end up being, um, you know, a, a treatment. But the good thing is there are other treatment, uh, you know, potentials that, that are being viewed. So uh, if hydroxychloroquine doesn't work out, um, that there certainly are others that, that are on the table as, uh, you know, as potential therapeutics. And are they um, drugs that are heavy duty like this one? These two are used to treat malaria. And I know that I've taken anti-malarial drugs. They are intense. The dreams you have on those, uh, you know, if you're traveling anywhere where you need to take it. And in my case, I was in Africa. It, I wouldn't even like to uh, just hazard a guess at what it's like to be on uh, chloroquine. Yeah, so you know, for hydroxychloroquine, it's used fairly regularly for uh, for people with with uh, lupus, um, as well as rheumatoid arthritis because of its uh, you know anti-inflammatory properties. So you know, I think you know one of the concerns there is that obviously you you could decrease or run into a shortage if if there were too many doses that that were being prescribed for uh, for COVID nineteen. Um, but there are other drugs. I mean, we've we've looked at uh, you know uh, repurposed drugs. So again, there's there's been some. Um, 
uh, some trials that have looked at the potential of anti-HIV therapeutics um, mm-hmm. that, that have shown at least some potential benefit uh, for at least for SARS coronavirus. We don't know quite yet for SARS-CoV-2. We've seen uh, some some drugs uh, with remdesivir that that have suggested there might be some uh, you know potential uh, options. And, and there is definitely a lot that that's being tested right now. Uh, in in COVID nineteen laboratories, so I think that the book is is definitely open. And uh, if anything, the one thing I, I will say about researchers is that they've been taking this seriously and this idea of drug repurposing for a while because of the limitations of, of creating new drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I think that there will be actually um, you know quite a quite a quite a mass amount of uh, of options that that will be coming our way uh, over the next while. I'm running out of time here, but it just it, it occurred to me when you said the limitations of creating new drugs. Is that because we've taken it out of the public hands? Because there has been an argument of, you know, uh, if it's all in the hands of developing drugs is all in the hands of the private sector, then that, you know, if it doesn't if it's if it doesn't scream profit, they're not even going to attempt to uh, de- yeah. de- develop drugs. It's partially along that, and it's partially along the lines that it still takes about 10 years to get a new drug from bench to bedside and about a billion dollars. And that's, that's right. not guaranteeing that you're going to actually see it get licensed. So I think there, there are a lot of people that have shied away in the private sector. It's just not profitable and, and definitely uh, you know, costs a lot of money to, to keep those trials going. It occurred to me while we were talking about chloroquine that I might have been mispronouncing it as chloroquinine because there's this story I'm a big fan of, and people know this that listen to the show. Our official drink of the show is the fun and tonic, uh, fun being gin, and a tonic is, of course, full of quinine, right? Well, at least it used to be. Have you heard about people stocking up on tonic water to protect themselves from COVID-19 because they they figure the quinine is going to help them out? You know, I, I certainly have, but but to be fair, I mean, listen, I I've heard any number of of different theories uh, over the last while as far as COVID nineteen, but yeah, no, the tonic water was one of the ones that uh, that came out. I think in in February with a lot of people uh, discussing it on social media. So, listen, a, a, everything is an option in in the world of social media for for potential uh, drugs or therapeutics for for COVID nineteen. But listen, before people start buying up my supply, because I need it for my fun and tonics, um, <laughs> there's not enough quinine in tonic water, in modern day tonic nut water, to do anything for you, right? No, no, cer- certainly not. And again, we're, we're still at a point where we don't know if, if any of these drugs actually uh, provide a benefit. So, yeah, I, I would not be buying shares in, uh, in any tonic companies uh, at this point in time. All right. Thanks so much. Jason, it's a pleasure having you on the show again. Thanks for your time. Great. Thank you for having me.